You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 13, Spyclopedia number 1, William Stevenson, part 2, or FBI Foot Guys. Today I'm recording from one Helgolander Ufer in Berlin. In 1940, William Donovan wrote a series of articles on German fifth column tactics, and it was basically a summary of William Stevenson's secret British intelligence sources. These articles generated a lot of publicity and reaction. They were reprinted in many U.S. newspapers all over the country. What's more, they were the occasion for a broadcast over a nationwide hookup, the first time a speaker other than FDR would address the entire nation. In other words, William Donovan gave a fireside chat. That's pretty crazy, right? As you might guess, the decision to whip up the public with fear about a sizable fifth column subverting the interests of the nation, that's never a random or unplanned decision. It's always highly political, and often largely theatrical, which is not to say it's not true, but it's not to say that it is true either. In this case, FDR was waging a political war against the isolationists, the crypto-fascists, and the America First movement, both in and out of the Democratic Party. FDR's faction fought for two months to pass the Lend-Lease Bill, which empowered the president to sell, transfer, exchange, lend, lease, or otherwise dispose of defense materials for the government of any country whose defense the president deems vital to the defense of the United States and it became law. This made it much easier for them to do things like sell Britain weapons. All that finagling about the 50 US destroyers, that would have been much easier under this new law. Fiercely opposing the bill was Senator Burton K. Wheeler and other members of the America First organization who claimed that this bill, its enactment, would mean plowing under every fourth American boy on foreign battlefields for the benefit of a decayed British Empire. Or in other words, precisely what happened in World War I, and soon to occur in World War II as well. And that's the great irony of World War II. Many of the arguments that were used to justify World War I were more applicable to World War II and most of the arguments against World War II were in fact more applicable to World War I. It's like the United States got the wars backwards. It makes sense to a certain degree because many people were, were responding to living memories of an absolutely pointless war that they could remember well within their lifetimes. It's impossible to talk about history from a completely neutral point of view, so I'll just come out and say up front, I am quite sympathetic to a lot of the isolationist arguments against World War II, even if I do think that the U.S. should have fought in World War II. I do not like or agree with the fact that many in the America First movement were fascists, but certainly not all of them were. And, to be fair, there was a marked difference in who was in the America First movement before and after the United States' entry into World War II. Before their entry, there were a lot of reputable and normal people in the America First movement. And after the United States' entry into World War II, it was more and more filled with Klansmen, Silver Shirts, Nazis, German Bundists, and so on. I just thought it would be worth making these distinctions. I am also sympathetic to the plight of the countries that were attacked by the Nazis, including the, the USSR, so I do see the value in interventionism, at least up to a point. I thought it would be fair to tell you where I'm coming from. So, let's get into it. Let's get back to Stevenson and Donovan. Wild Bill Donovan was sent over to the United Kingdom for a second time, and William Stevenson hyped up Donovan's visit. He hyped Donovan up even more to the British elites. He hyped him up to Admiral Cunningham of British Naval Intelligence, specifically. Stevenson wrote strongly worded communiques which made it abundantly clear to the Admiral and his staff that Donovan was the most important emissary that they were ever likely to meet in this world or the next. <laughs> 
Donovan said that he had never been treated in such a royal and exalted fashion and that the red carpet had been thicker and wider than he thought was possible to lay. And Donovan became absolutely convinced of the need to provide much more material assistance to the United Kingdom in order for them to hold their position. Winston Churchill arranged for Donovan to visit Bulgaria and Yugoslavia, not least of which because they had intel suggesting that Hitler planned to invade on May 15th. But, and this is remarkable, but it's true, the Nazis held off invading until after Donovan had left to avoid provoking an international incident. This means that Donovan's trip actually bought the British a crucial eight days of reprieve. This allowed for the British to establish a foothold in Greece. On the trip, Donovan was shadowed by German agents, but nothing happened to him. So, at this point, William Stevenson was tasked with building a secret organization more or less from scratch. However, he was not without his advantages, and the book Room 3603 highlights four main advantages that he had. First, he had a liaison, a personal liaison, with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. Second, he had contacts with interventionists like Donovan and, to a lesser extent, FDR himself. Third, he had goodwill and support from Canada. Canada backed him fully. Fourth, he had support and assistance from the British ambassador to the US. And it's actually funny because the ambassador at the time, Lord Lothian, was described as the first British ambassador who had been anything but a diplomatic clerk. Apparently, Lord Lothian was very reliable and very helpful to William Stevenson. However, this is funny, he was a Christian scientist, and I guess he got sick with some minor illness, couldn't figure out what the minor illness was exactly, and he insisted on seeing a faith healer rather than a doctor, and that minor illness killed him suddenly. So, we know what William Stevenson's advantages were. So, apart from his main mission of securing supplies for Britain, he had three main concerns. First, investigate enemy activities. Second, protect British property and supplies from sabotage. Third, mobilize U.S. public opinion in favor of Britain and her war effort towards intervention. Stevenson recruited members of his organization based on their skills and abilities. Reportedly, none of them had any background in espionage. And while I'm not a huge fan of believing spies, this is probably true. If for no other reason than because they were all quite, many of them were quite young, and it is unlikely that all of them would have had some interaction with espionage before this point. This does read as a first entry into espionage for many of them. Stevenson set up small offices in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle, but he established the closest liaison with the British Imperial Censorship, which was based in Bermuda. Now, the British Imperial Censorship is a very, very interesting thing, because it was able to and already intersecting and examining mail of its subjects. It could and did intercept mail planes and mail ships. Much, much more on that to come. Stevenson developed a working relationship with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and London put him in contact with an existing spy network in Latin America. Going off of what they say, there was no spy network in the U.S. prior to this point. I have my doubts about that too, but it's possible that that is true. But there was definitely one in Latin America, and he plugged right into that network. He basically took it over. He found the existing spy network still insufficient for the new workload, though, so he dispatched more agents to key cities all over Latin America. Basically, William Stevenson was setting up not only an intelligence network, but also what amounted to a private police force one dedicated almost exclusively to the special protection of British property. In doing this, he had to work very closely with J. Edgar Hoover, 
but Hoover was very accommodating. It was Hoover, in fact, who suggested the name for William Stevenson's organization in the United States, the British Security Coordination, or BSC. I'm loath to introduce names of organizations and acronyms, but this is one that I will probably use a lot. British Security Coordination, BSC. <clears throat> Hoover also let Stevenson use the FBI wireless channel, which was, at least for several months, Stevenson's only safe means of communication with London. So Hoover's FBI was stuck in a, in a pretty difficult situation. They were charged with responsibility for collecting secret intelligence of subversive activities throughout the Western Hemisphere that were likely to endanger U.S. security, and for the preparation of adequate preventative measures against potential spies and saboteurs. However, their legal authority was limited to counterespionage within the United States. And even with that, they were kept from collecting sources of information which were vital to this end. For example, and this might sound a little bit like I'm playing um, devil's advocate on behalf of the FBI, but to understand the story, I guess we have to. For example, there was no program for domestic censorship of mail or cables. So FBI agents were reduced, I say reduced, <clears throat> So FBI agents were forced, I say forced, so FBI agents had to rely on occasionally stealing letters from the post office in a haphazard fashion. Now, J. Edgar Hoover, in working closely with William Stevenson, he was doing that thing that he does best, which is basically making political gambles that would end up paying off. J. Edgar Hoover was betting that the interventionists would win over the isolationists. And he was written, he was taking major heat and risk and scrutiny if the isolationists won. However, as usual, Hooper made the right bet and he reaped many rewards in the form of William Stevenson and his intelligence that he would share. Before the war, Hoover had Stevenson completely under his wing. He didn't have to share him with anybody and he was able to dispense Stevenson's intelligence to the Office of Naval Intelligence and G2, which was U.S. military intelligence. Having to go through the FBI raised the prestige of the FBI, which Hoover loved. For Hoover heads out there, this is what Hoover dreamed of, the ability to control certain sources of information and leverage them out for political clout and gain. A dream for Hoover. Also, unlike MI5 and MI6, the FBI was subject to continuous public scrutiny. This limited the FBI's ability to do covert action. Now, I know what you're thinking. It sure doesn't seem like the FBI is limited in their capacity to do covert action, but when compared with what MI5 and MI6 can get away with, this is actually true. Finally, around these years, a recent Supreme Court decision had harshly rebuked the FBI for their widespread wiretapping without warrants. There was a time when you needed a warrant to do wiretapping, and let's be real, conventional wisdom says you need a warrant to do a wiretap, but we know how the real world works. But to get convictions, you certainly do, right? But that wasn't always the case, but it was around this time that it started to solidify that you needed a warrant to have a wiretap if you wanted to use that wiretap in court. That's important. Now, the interesting thing is that William Stevenson was not subject to any of these restrictions. I think you know where I'm going with this. That's right. The FBI would have Stevenson's BSC organization do anything they were not allowed to legally do. On top of that, the British were long-time mail readers. They had a whole system, a sophisticated mail examination system in Bermuda. And they had advanced mail reading, mail opening and mail reading techniques. During this time, Stevenson brought FBI agents to Bermuda to be trained in these dark arts. And of course, the CIA did not exist yet. The OSS did not even exist yet. It was the FBI interacting with the BSC that started 
this systematic mail reading program that we had in the United States. You better believe that HT Lingual has its roots in these lessons from the Brits as well. HT Lingual was the 21-year program to open approximately 28 million pieces of mail in the United States. It was run by the CIA, overseen by James Jesus Angleton, the old counterintelligence ghost himself. Now, when the FBI were trained by British intelligence in Bermuda on letter opening, what we are talking about is the unsealing and resealing of diplomatic and normal mail, so that their seals appear to be intact. They also were trained in the use of ultraviolet rays and chemicals in the course of these actions. So the British, with that curious blend of passive, unacknowledged sexism and bizarre pragmatism and possibly deviant sexuality, the British had figured out that covert letter opening was woman's work, and they justified it by saying that women have a high level of manual dexterity, of course. Of course. Of course. So they called these women the censorettes. So, in the course of running this program, they had figured out somehow that, and I quote here, a girl with neat ankles would be most likely to possess the required degree of manual dexterity for the job. In fact, there's a limerick that the censorettes would sometimes recite to themselves. I'm just a girl at MI5 and heading for a virgin's grave. My legs it was what got me in. Still I wait for my bit of sin. Dear listener, I'm not going to lie to you. How can I? How could I lie to you? I do not know what neat ankles are. Then again, I'm not a foot guy. And I don't see how neat ankles would correlate with manual dexterity. Then again, who am I to say? I have never run a large-scale letter opening operation either. Maybe it's true. So what do I know? But to me, this sounds either like a foot guy who has used his position in covert operations to check out his co-workers' feet, or maybe it was a prank that the British were playing on FBI agents. Honestly, FBI agents are probably the funniest people to mess with if you can get away with it, and they assuredly could in this situation. Who knows? You decide. Nevertheless, the FBI took the advice to heart, and when they started to hold job interviews for what would become the United States' letter opening program, they applied what they learned. The job posting only stated that the job would be confidential and that the women might be called to do it in Latin America. The women began to be a little concerned, though, about the job when they found out that the preliminary screening involved a close inspection of their ankles by a G-man, by an FBI agent. Those who were worried about the precise nature of the services expected of them had to be reassured that this was not that kind of job. MI6 and FBI foot guys. Female body inspectors indeed. I am not making this up. In October 1940, the Italian embassy was preparing for the possibility of the United States entering the war. So they withdrew $3,850,000 from U.S. banks as a precaution against a freezing order. The freezing order would seize the assets of the Italian embassy in the event of a war. The Italians planned to send consuls carrying the cash to Latin America where they would use the cash to finance subversive activities there. Using consuls as couriers is a time-honored tradition that goes back as long as consuls have existed, more or less, and as long as the concept of diplomatic immunity has existed, because consuls, of course, are more or less immune to search and seizure because of that diplomatic immunity. Every country abuses this right, not just banana republics or communist countries. Everyone seems to do it. Hoover and Stevenson wanted to stop the Italians from sending that money. Of course, Hoover's hands were tied, but Stevenson's were not. Hoover placed the Italians under surveillance. They could handle that part of the job. The Italian consuls split up, with one taking a train to Mexico, with the other taking a flight to Brazil. 
In Mexico, William Stevenson arranged for the consul's bag to be opened by the Mexican Police Intelligence Department. This was a violation of diplomatic privilege. The Italian ambassador, of course, protested vehemently, and the Mexican government had to apologize for the stupid actions of a new and inexperienced clerk who was actually a police intelligence officer. However, even though they had to apologize, the Mexicans placed the money into a blocked bank account and thereby nullified it, keeping it from being used for subversive activities. Very tricky. Now, in Brazil, William Stevenson's agents were simply going to steal the cash outright. But, supposedly, the consul got away. Or so they say. Here's another story. So when war broke out, of course there are German and Italian ships all over the world. And when war broke out, there were four German and twelve Italian ships stuck in the Gulf ports of Tampico and Veracruz, Mexico. They were stuck there because the British started a blockade. The British could not come in and attack the ships in the ports, both because they wanted to keep a good relationship with Mexico and simply because the British Navy was not particularly well outfitted. The destroyers that the US sold them were being used in more critical areas, so these were not, so these were not the best ships that they had. Still, these 16 Axis ships needed to get back to their respective countries. So they were thinking about making a break through the blockade. And that's where Stevenson and his organization came in. So Stevenson knew what was going on. He passed the information to J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover passed it on to the Office of Naval Intelligence. Stevenson's initial plan was to just blow up the ships. But again, that was denied, like Sweden 2.0. So in consultation with Hoover, they dispatched the U.S. Navy to the Gulf. The Office of Naval Intelligence and the State Department made a plan to send four U.S. destroyers to the Gulf and just sit there. But they decided to start reporting by radio in Claire. Which is to say that they were using radio, not using codes or ciphers. That meant that the Germans and Italians could hear their communications. This was an intentional choice. On November 15th, 1940, the four German vessels, not the Italians, the Italians were like, absolutely not, but the four German vessels waited till nighttime and tried to make a break for it. They were going to bust right through the blockade. Now, the U.S. destroyers trained their full battery of searchlights onto the four German ships. This is normally what they would do if they were going to fire on the ships. But the destroyers did not fire on the ships. They simply turned the lights on. They made the German captains think they were about to fire on the ships. And this freaked them out. And it caused one of the German ships to scuttle themselves. The other three boats went full speed back to port. The next day they surrendered to British warships. A pretty funny yet effective trick, all things considered. Now, in what we in the business like to call foreshadowing, the FBI would sometimes plant deceptive material in diplomatic cables. Like, for instance, in 1940, well before Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the FBI planted deceptive material in the diplomatic cables, suggesting that the USSR would attack Nazi Germany if the Nazis attacked the US. This was more or less untrue, but it would have possibly helped the Nazis think twice about attacking the US if they were reading the diplomatic cables and thought it was real. Do you think they ever do that today? Another interesting example of disinformation was diplomatic communication about a secret British superweapon that was supposed to be some sort of glass balls containing chemicals that would produce such terrific heat that they could not be extinguished by any known means. Now, were that to be true, that would be a pretty wild super weapon. And it does have a sort of weird resonance with the atomic bomb, which of course had not been invented yet. 
Either way, it's an interesting example of disinformation. So Stevenson's main day-to-day -day responsibility lay in protecting the flow of supplies to Britain. And much like the risks at the docks, there were many Germans, Irish, and Italians working at factories making the goods that would eventually find their way to Britain. They were, also, they were also working on the railways, on the roads, and so forth. Like we mentioned before, there were specific dangers to Britain coming from the German Bund, different Italian fraternal and crime organizations, the isolationists, and as well as American businessmen who had ties to Europe, the Catholic Irish, the communists before the entry of the Soviet Union into the war, and all unions in general, who might theoretically slow down or stop production. So Arthur Purvis, who ran the British Purchasing Commission, set Stevenson up running his security division, which was just what the name said, plus some. There was something like four billion in war supplies flowing across the seas that needed protection and Stevenson needed to protect it. They quickly developed a whole process to quickly and effectively vet firms and companies placing orders with Britain. And every contract that they signed allowed a clause allowing for technical inspections, which Stevenson's BSC used to excess. They performed 30,000 inspections in one year, making sure everything was on the up and up. Thanks to this vigilance, not a single vessel carrying British supplies ever fell victim to sabotage. Stevenson, ever the good businessman, was not content just with protecting supplies. He also had a secondary task of increasing shipping turnaround. As the thinking goes, the more supplies that made it to Britain faster the better. In what you might call the epigenetic memory of British crimes, Stevenson's organization almost provoked an international incident because they would follow sailors around, specifically Danish merchant marines in this case. And when these Danish merchant marines would go on their shore leave, they would follow them, make sure they didn't drink to excess, and if they got too drunk, they would round them up in paddy wagons and drive them back to their ships, sometimes arresting them, just to release them right back at their ships. The optics were so bad because it looked like a British press gang, just like they used to do in the old British Navy. Stevenson was told to cool it down a little bit with his monitoring of foreign sailors. You can take the Brits out of Britain, but you cannot take the desire to do crimes out of the Brit. Still, that's the level of zealousness and assiduousness we're talking about here. So let's talk about German spies in the United States. It has been asserted sometimes by people that German spying was effective in World War II and more effective than in World War I. Some people say this, but that is not what H. Montgomery Hyde, the author of Room 3603, who was himself a spy, and it's not what William Stevenson thought. There are probably a couple reasons why German spying was less, German spying in the United States especially, was less effective than in World War I. For one thing, Hitler did not want to provoke the United States, so he, probably foolishly on his part, did not dispatch many spies to create U.S. spy networks, even though conditions were probably ripe for it. On top of that, Germany's secret intelligence service, the Abwehr, was run by Admiral Canaris, who we have talked about in episode 7. Admiral Canaris provided naval funds to the organization Consul and the Viking Bund, the terrorist organization that assassinated Weimar politicians. So, Canaris, who I would love to cover in his own episode, he was an arch-monarchist. And it has been suspected that he was working for or with British intelligence going back I don't know how, how far. Some people assert that it dated back to from the start of World War II. Some people assert it went back further. Some people assert that it was not true. 
Canaris would later be executed for his clandestine opposition to the Nazi leadership. There's a whole book's worth of nuance here, and I haven't read it yet, but the fact remains that there was a divide between Canaris and the Nazis, and whether intentional or not, it probably harmed their spying efforts. In comparing German sabotage between World War I and World War II, it's like night and day. In World War I, there was a famous incident called the Black Tom Explosion that took place in the New York Harbor in July 1916. 37 loads of high explosives blew up several warehouses, a dozen barges and ships, a railway station, and some railway yards, all at the same time. Nothing like that happened in World War II. In World War II, the FBI investigated 20,000 cases of possible sabotage and did not find a single case to have been carried out by German agents. As a side note, U.S. intelligence cut deals with the U.S. Italian Mafia, with the Italian-American Mafia to protect their ships and their shipyards. It is disputed, but likely that this did not actually help very much, but that's a, that's a separate story. In May 1942, the Nazis landed eight covert agents by submarine on the eastern seaboard. Two of the eight would-be saboteurs and spies turned themselves in immediately and snitched on their comrades, thereby saving their own lives. The other six went to the electric chair. For whatever reasons or whatever was going on, that is the difference between German spying between World War I and World War II. Now on the flip side, the Nazi propaganda in the U.S. was actually very effective, and Stevenson's BSC organization spent a lot of time and effort trying to combat it. One of their main opponents was a Dr. Gerhard Alois Westrick, who ironically showed up in the United States at the same time that William Stevenson did. He held the diplomatic rank of commercial counselor at the German embassy. Dr. Westrick spent a lot of his time, get this, meeting U.S. businessmen, particularly oil industry executives. I would kill to know exactly which executives he met with. Like perhaps, say, any of the Bush family. Or perhaps any Rockefellers. You know, the list goes on. Stevenson's people also began to notice surreptitious meetings with young, relatively obscure German-Americans who happened to work at key strategic factories. Even more interesting, Dr. Westrick was working with ITT, the International Telephone and Telegraph Company, which CIA heads know was involved in the 1973 coup in Chile. But they might not know that it's an old money Connecticut company that had many large German subsidiaries and was in bed with the Nazis. You know who else Dr. Westrick met with? Heinrich Albert. I don't blame you if you don't remember these people. I can barely remember some of them myself. But Heinrich Albert we talked about in episode 3. So Heinrich Albert was a German spy during World War One. In World War One, he bought up all of the specific type of a industrial ceramic in the U.S., thereby crippling the U.S. chemical industry. Separately, he smuggled rubber, which Germany badly needed, and he also spread pro-German propaganda back then. He was caught because he accidentally left a suitcase on the subway that was full of incriminating evidence. But here's the kicker. Heinrich Albert was the key partner in the German office of Sullivan and Cromwell. Remember, the German office was active between World War I and World War II. So this is not ancient history. So we see that the guy running German espionage in the United States right before World War II was in direct communication with the partner in Sullivan and Cromwell's law firm. This is just one of those things that makes you go, Hmm. So, William Stevenson leaked the story of Dr. Westrick's fifth column activities to the New York Herald Tribune, and it caused a public outroar, 
so bad that Dr. Westrick finally decided to leave the country. Still, there were probably about a quarter of a million U.S. citizens who were either born in Germany or had parents born in Germany. In this era, German was the second most common language spoken after English, and this was true for many years after, and all of those people were theoretically a risk, especially true if they were involved in the German Bund organization or any related groups. There was a large overlap between the German Bund and the America First movement, both in ideology and membership, and it's easy to forget that these were very, very popular movements. There's a pretty hilarious story of Lord Halifax, who became ambassador when the other guy died of Christian science folly, I guess you could say. So Lord Halifax, ambassador to the United States, visited Detroit, and he was pelted with eggs and ripe tomatoes with what some people called astonishing accuracy. He was being pelted by isolationist women. He dryly responded, We do not have any such surplus in England. Which, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. Sometimes British people are pretty wry and funny. Along the same lines, Charles Lindbergh, the aviation hero and possible baby murderer, real PTK fans know what I'm talking about. So Charles Lindbergh, aviation hero, baby murderer, alleged baby murderer, and not alleged, certain Nazi sympathizer, Charles Lindbergh was one of the most prominent America First members. He used his fame and celebrity and his platform to state that only three groups wanted the U.S. to enter World War II. The British, the Jews, and the Roosevelt Organization. Which, although couched in anti-Semitism, this assertion is more true than it sounds like today. William Stevenson made the America First movement his main enemy on the propaganda front. He leveraged existing anti-Nazi groups like the Fight for Freedom Committee and the Century Group, the latter group already providing great assistance mobilizing public opinion in favor of the Destroyers for Bases Agreement that we talked about last episode. The Century Group was led by, get this, a former Rhodes Scholar, Colonel Francis P. Miller, who was also friends with Wild Bill Donovan. Rhodes Scholars, as I've mentioned in past episodes, I'm pretty sure, Rhodes Scholars are signs that some elite is close to the Anglo power structures. We've seen it in the past, and we're going to see it in the future. Stevenson also got America First meetings to be picketed by the American Legion, which is interesting. But not everything Stevenson did turned to gold. For instance, Stevenson's people were monitoring an America First meeting that would take place at Madison Square Garden. And his plan was to get as many tickets as they could and then go sit in the seats before the actual supporters could arrive, thereby keeping real supporters from attending. They miscalculated how many America First supporters were going to attend, and there was room for everyone, so they actually ended up making it look like a packed audience. In other words, their plan backfired completely. So, you remember Fritz Wiedemann? We talked about Fritz Wiedemann in episode 4. He served with Hitler in World War I, and he later testified at Nuremberg. So, Fritz Wiedemann shows up in San Francisco in 1940, before the U.S. entry into the war. He approached the British embassy with an offer to help broker peace if Hitler's regime were overthrown in favor of a restoration of the Hohenzollern monarchy. He was soon joined by Steffi Richter, also known as Her Serene Highness Princess Stephanie Hohenlohe-Waldenberg-Schillings I. And she was a Nazi spy who kept a flat at Mayfair, which is to say that she was associated with the pro-German British elites. Together, they spoke with the British embassy about plans to approach Hitler with an offer of peace. They also spoke about plans to overthrow him. Both plans appealed to the British. Although neither of those plans came to fruition, they did provide information regarding Hitler's plans for the Balkans. 
They stated in November 1940 that the Nazis planned to move through the Balkans to invade Yugoslavia and Greece, which people did not know that that would work or that that was Hitler's plan. But it is precisely what happened five months later. So in December 1940, the censors in Bermuda found an interesting letter written by a Joe K. The letter was going to Berlin, and it contained a list of Allied ships in the New York Harbor. The cover address was one Helgolander Ufer in Berlin. They eventually found out that that was the cover address for Gestapo chief Heinrich Himmler. So the censors saw this letter and started to look out for more letters from this mysterious Joe K. They found several more letters that seemed to just talk about normal commercial business. They tried to analyze the letter using the chemical tricks they already knew, but they couldn't find anything. Finally, one determined young censorette named Nadia Gardner, who reportedly had a great pair of legs and a slight knowledge of inorganic chemistry. I kid you not, that's the quote. She apparently figured this out. She applied iodine regent, which showed secret writing on every single page of Joe K of Joe K's letters. The invisible ink was pyramidon, which was a powdered substance that used to be sold as a headache cure in drugstores. Now it's largely replaced by aspirin and acetaminophen. Through a pretty long investigation, they figured out that Joe K was a was a man named Fred Ludwig, who was a German-American from Ohio running a spy ring for the Nazis. Once they figured this out, they placed him under surveillance, and after monitoring him for a time, they scooped up the whole ring. It was about nine people in total. When they arrested him, they found dozens of bottles of Pyramidon. Even crazier, in the ring, they found an agent named Paul Borchod, who was actually a Jew. Nevertheless, he was working for the Nazi spy ring. Fred Ludwig's spy ring provided, mainly provided information on Allied shipping routes. Because their spy ring started before the U.S. entered World War II, they did not get the death penalty. Ludwig got 20 years, served 11, and was deported to Germany in 1953. The prosecution more or less hid Stevenson, hid the role that William Stevenson's BSC played, attributing everything to the FBI. And so what happened to Nadia Gardner, with her nice legs and slight knowledge of inorganic chemistry? She ended up a managing director at Estee Lauder. Did you know that members of Congress can send mail without postage? I did not know that, but apparently it's called franking, and I guess it's been around since colonial times. Would it surprise you that members of Congress often abuse the privilege? Usually, though, it's such small potatoes that it's not worth the effort to enforce the rules, but not for William Stevenson, and certainly not during war. So, Henry Hoke, the U.S. advertising executive, had figured out that certain congressmen were using the franking privilege to distribute for free not only their own isolationist speeches, but also outright Nazi propaganda. What's more, they were sending it all over the country, not just to their constituents. Hoke told the Postmaster General, the FBI, and the Office of Naval Intelligence, but none of them took any action, so Hoke went to William Stevenson. The congressmen involved were Senator Burton K. Wheeler, who we mentioned at the top of the episode. Embarrassingly for FDR, Senator Wheeler was a Democrat. Also involved was Jacob Thorkelson, who was a Norwegian-American representative from Montana, as well as Robert Rice Reynolds, the senator from North Carolina. He was known for his isolationist stance and his Nazi apologetics. Reynolds lived in Asheville, North Carolina, where I note that William Dudley Pelley's silver shirts, the would-be American fascists, were based. It was almost as if there were Nazi agents somewhere in the office of Congress. Through an investigation, the British Security Coordination found a cultural organization called the Steuben Society, which was 
spreading the Nazi propaganda, and then sending it through congressional franked mail. Stevenson's counteroffensive was pretty intense. He had Henry Hoke write an open letter to the senators, accusing them of abusing the frank privilege, and that letter was reprinted 100,000 times and sent all over the country. Eventually, that letter would form a short book called Blackmail, the inside story of the campaign to disrupt America, how it was planned, how it operates, and what it is doing. I've looked through the book. It's a little bit dated now, kind of boring, but it is pretty short, and it's pretty interesting. So the congressmen involved lost face and prestige, and they stopped abusing their franking privileges. They did not face any other consequences. The public learned about the dangers of Nazi fifth column activities, and this was a major PR boost for the interventionist crowd. Then the America First headquarters were raided for purchasing pre-franked mail, which they found proof of on the premises. The man selling the pre-franked mail was in contact with Nazi propagandist George Vierich, who was an interesting, very fascinating guy. So. George Vierek's father was probably the illegitimate son of Wilhelm I, of Kaiser Wilhelm I, by way of an actress. George Vierek, not his father, was an author who wrote many works, including The House of the Vampire, which is apparently one of the first instances of psychic vampires, rather than just vampires feeding off of blood. When George Vierick was arrested, he had $100,000 on him, and he could not explain the money. He was found to be in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and so he was sent to prison for five years. Due to his time in prison, and presumably his experiences there, he wrote a novel called Men Into Beasts, which dealt with situational homosexuality and male rape. Some people consider it the first gay pulp novel. A very fascinating guy. So, what are some conclusions we can draw from today? William Stevenson had a lot of things going for him, and it appears that he wasted no time getting a fully functional spy ring up and running, like, immediately. Either he was already familiar with espionage, like I assert, or he was a spy savant, like the author of Room 3603 asserts. I think you know which one I lean towards. Then we saw how the FBI, which is genuinely held back by things like laws, court rulings, and public opinion, still sought to get around them by using certain special groups to accomplish things they couldn't do themselves. In this case, the special groups were William Stevenson and his British security coordination. But the FBI using certain special groups to get around things they can't legally do themselves. Man, I sure hope they don't do that today. Then we saw how the British were already running mass surveillance on its subjects. In some ways, you might even say that they invented it. So we saw how British intelligence was already running mass surveillance on its subjects. And we saw that the FBI got its institutional knowledge of how to run an operation like that directly from them. Just as the OSS and the CIA learned directly from MI5 and MI6 during the war. To truly understand US intelligence agencies, we have to understand British intelligence agencies. With the mail censorship program, <laughs> we saw how blandly sexist everything used to be in the old days. Also, I don't know about you, but when I read Thomas Pynchon novels, I swear, like, Four or five times per novel, characters would just break out into, like, limericks or songs. It happens almost as frequently as, like, The Lord of the Rings or something. And I never really understood why Pynchon kept doing that, until I started doing this podcast and doing hard research. These people, by which I mean wasps and Brits, I guess, these people love songs and, limerick and limericks like that. It's bizarre to me. But they do. Here's another one that I found when researching British security coordination. It doesn't really relate to anything, but it's stuck in my head. And so this was a limerick that the workers of British security coordination would sometimes say to each other. 
A lady of doubtful nativity had a fanny of great sensitivity. When she sat on the lap of a Nazi or Jap, she could detect fifth column activity. Then, we saw how efficient Stevenson's British security coordination was. And I just want to go on record and point out that sometimes you hear people talking. You hear people on Twitter. Maybe you're listening to NPR. I don't know. You hear someone you hear someone trying to debunk something like maybe 9-11 was an inside job. And you'll hear one of the frequent counter-arguments. One that's very common is that nobody can keep a conspiracy with more than 50 people. You'll also hear arguments that people are so bumbling and inefficient, so surely something like that could never be pulled off. Stevenson's organization, as with most intelligence agencies, show that you can absolutely keep secrets when it's literally your job to do so. And especially when you build in strategic silos and walls of information, and you tie people's pay, pensions, security, social standing, to their ability to keep quiet. You make a system that rewards it, and it that's what you get. It's not that crazy. Even more, Stevenson and his BSC and the BSC show what an intensely competent intelligence agency would look like and how much it could accomplish. Also, I suspect that much of the fumbling that gets revealed about the FBI and the CIA is a total misunderstanding and or misrepresentation of what those organizations' actual goals and work consist of. So we're not done with the story yet, so we won't be drawing final conclusions, but there's a lot more intrigue to come. It only gets crazier from here. So regarding sources today, I'm still using Room 3603, I'm also using Agents of Influence, the excellent articles at the Spartacus Educational website. To a lesser extent, I used the book Censorettes. Also, I also briefly used the book written by Henry Hoke called Blackmail. Thank you so much for listening. As always, just tell a friend, show, show people the podcast, and I need to be on my way to 1251 Avenue of the Americas in New York City. See you next week, and God bless.